started with the, the lesson this morning, um, I had something really special that I wanted to share with you guys. So before I put you guys to sleep, we're going to have uh, Danny Uskanga come up and wake you guys up. So just to give you just a little bit of the backstory, um, Danny was one of our LTC participants. And what he did this year is he actually gave a devotion at LTC. And he did such a great job with that devotion that they asked him to come back for the Sunday morning service and give it to the entire conference. So just to give you an idea of how good it was. And I thought it was really powerful. I was super, super impressed and proud of Danny. So I thought it would be only fitting this morning since we're having a youth-led service to let Danny come up and give that same devotional for you folks this morning. So I hope you'll enjoy it. A little there. <laughs> I'm really happy to be here. Um, this has been a beautiful morning. I've really felt a lot more uplifted, and I'm really enjoying being up here with my peers. Um, it's not a lot of times that I get to enjoy being up on stage, and then also seeing some younger guys go up here and take some roles too. So, just wanted to put my thoughts out there for that. Um, Aaron talked about how I went to LTC and how I gave a little speech. There were some uh, things that I had to follow, like there was a theme and there was a specific book. So it's going to be um, along those lines. The name of my sermon is called Stepping Off the Throne. Um, I started off by asking the couple of people that were in the room with me when I was practicing and when I was um, performing is, what is a king? According to Webster's Dictionary, these are the three definitions that I got from being a king, one of them being my favorite. The first one on Webster's Dictionary that says it's a king is a male monarch of a major territorial unit, especially one whose position is hereditary and rules for life. I'm not a big fan of that one because it's a little more historical and a little more to the real definition of what an actual king is here in today's society. The second one we have here is one who holds a permanent position, especially a chief among competitors. This one was my favorite and one I want us to keep in mind. The next one is about chess, checkers, and cards. I think we're going to skip that one. <laughs> the way I look at it, a king is someone that people look for strength, somebody that people can rely on, some, someone that we can depend on. There are people like that in society, and they become our leaders. But I find that our hearts are like the same way, that we constantly, throughout history, have been looking for someone to lead us, someone to depend on. I want us to imagine right now our heart as a throne. I want us to close our eyes and do that right now. I want us to imagine what that heart looks like, what that throne is made of. It could be made of gold or diamonds, typical king's throne. It could be a couch that you like at your house. But for me, mine is made out of leather. And it's got all these cool accessories and abilities, like it can give massages and it has a cup holder and everything. Now I want us to imagine what is sitting on that throne right now. For some people, it's their job. For others, they find themselves putting money in that position. Others, it's clothes. For some, it's food. But I find myself sitting on that throne a lot. I want us to open our eyes now, and I want us to open up to 1 Samuel chapters 13, 11 through 14. Now, before we get into this, I'd like to talk a little about the backstory in this because it's kind of a little long. 
The character that I'm focusing on right now is a lot like me. I find myself in this person's position a lot. Saul was at Gilgal, awaiting, the, awaiting, awaiting under the orders of God. God had asked him to stay there and wait, and there were some instructions, and there, were a, there was a situation that Saul was under. He was waiting for Samuel to arrive so that they could burn the offering. Now, this offering was right before they were getting ready to go to war. Saul was surrounded by his enemies, the Philistines. Now, psychologically and logically, I understand why Saul did what he did. I mean, I would have cracked under a situation like that, and I have many times before. But there's a certain reason why. I think I forgot to put my bookmark here, so let's open up real quick. Saul found himself surrounded by his enemies and completely caught off guard, in which he cracked and broke down and burnt the offering just moments before Samuel could arrive, before, to which we go to our verse right now. What have you done? asked Samuel. Saul replied, When I saw that the men were scattering and that you did not come at the set time, and that the Philistines were come, will come down, and that I saw that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal. And I had not set up the Lord's favor, so I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. You acted foolishly, Samuel said. You have not kept the command of the Lord, the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. Because you have not kept the Lord's command. Then Samuel left Gilgal and went to Gibhab in Benjamin. I find myself in Saul's position all the time, surrounded by my enemies, in a very tough position with instructions that go against what I'm feeling at the moment. I find myself sitting on the throne and making the calls, making decisions, and putting my priorities um, ahead of God's. I have a solution to this problem, but it's one that I have not been able to overcome myself, something that is a little tough for me just because of my personality, and I know that maybe some of you guys are struggling with it too. The answer is stepping off the throne. The answer is to tear down that ego, and it's painful, and it's hard, but the only way that you can have a real king is if you step off and let one that is really suitable take position. God is the king of our hearts. Thank you. Wow, I, I feel like another lesson is redundant at this point. Maybe we just give the invitation and close it out. Um, all joking aside, I, I have prepared a lesson, uh, but I want to thank Danny for coming up and having the courage to come up here. Um, for those of you who have given talks, have given lessons, um, you know it, it's not the easiest thing to do in the world, especially for a young man, so I applaud you, Danny, and all of the kids that were up here this morning. You guys are doing a fantastic job making me look good. I appreciate that. Um, for those of you who may not know me, my name is Aaron Stevens, and I have the best job in the world. I am the youth minister here at the Mission Viejo Church of Christ, and I get to work with these amazing young people on a weekly basis. Um, and then once in a while, the elders put enough faith in me to let me come up here 
and give a lesson to the, to the, the big church, and uh, that's what I'll be doing for you guys here this morning. Um, before we get too deep into our, our discussion here, um, you guys should have all been handed rocks when you came in the door, and I know that's a little confusing. Um, did anyone not get a rock when they came in this morning? So a couple of my young guys down here are going to come and bring you one. Guys, grab the people. Keep your hands up until they, until they come and get you. I know that probably seemed a little strange to most of you. Why am I getting handed a rock? But I promise you, um, it'll all make sense, I hope, a little bit later on <laughs> if I'm doing my job. Um, do you guys ever have an idea and you think, this seems like a really good idea, and then you get to the point of execution and you start second-guessing yourself? Anybody been there, done that? So I had this great idea for a lesson that's going to be super powerful, and we're going to do an object lesson because uh, in youth ministry, that's what we do is we do object lessons. So I thought, I'm going to give all of the congregation a rock. And then I thought, wait a minute, I just gave the entire congregation a rock. <laughs> Maybe not the smartest thing I've ever done, because if you guys don't like the sermon, because I haven't done this in a really long time, so I'm probably a little rusty. If you guys don't like the sermon, please don't throw rocks at me. That was not the point of the rocks, I assure you. Besides that, we would probably break the window, and then Miss Alicia would probably kill me for that. So, um, but it'll all make sense to you guys a little bit later on. I appreciate, appreciate you guys all coming out this morning. Um, as, as a youth minister, I always have this fear that when it comes my turn to preach in the big church that I'm going to walk in and nobody's going to be here because nobody wants to hear what I have to say. So I am so glad to have you guys all here this morning. Um, I have to say just really quickly, hi, Mom and Dad, who are watching on the live stream at home. Um, and we're going to have a lesson this morning titled uh, Glass Houses. Now, you guys all heard the scripture that Adam read so greatly for us just a few minutes ago, so we're not going to take the time to read through that again. But what we're going to be talking about this morning um, is the old adage, right? People that live in glass houses shouldn't throw what? Shouldn't throw stones, right? And we all know what that kind of means, and we've all heard that a million times. Um, and this, the lesson this morning is from John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. And I don't think for most of you, this is like a brand new story, like, oh my goodness, I've never heard that before. Um, and that was by design. So this should be probably a pretty familiar story for most of you, but hopefully I'm going to give you guys some takeaways that you can take with you, and then I'm going to put a little twist on it at the end, so, uh, so stay tuned, don't go anywhere. Um, the scripture that we're going to be using is going to be from John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. And again, I'm not going to reread that, but if you want to follow along in your Bibles or on your Bible app or your smartphones or your iPads, please feel free to do so. Again, it'll be John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. So this is the big idea of our lesson today, and that is that nothing you do will make God love you any less. So nothing you do will make God love you any less. Do we all agree with that? Okay, so some people are awake. Nothing you can do will make God love you any less. And that's the story. That's kind of the moral of the story that we're going to talk about here this morning. Um, and we're going to talk about some other points here along the way. But this is kind of the big idea of the lesson. So honestly, if you don't take anything else from the lesson today, this is what I want you to take with you. And that's that nothing that you can do can make God love you any less. Now, we could also have a whole other lesson on the flip side of that coin, which is nothing that we can do will make God love us anymore, right? Because God already has this undying love for us regardless of what we do. Now, he may not always love the things that we do, but that doesn't mean that he loves us any less. And that's really the key point that we're going to talk about here this morning. So we're going to jump into this story, and I want to set the scene here for you. And again, I'm not going to read this word for word again because I think Adam did a great job, and I don't think that's necessary. But we're going to talk about some key points of our lesson. So in the first couple of verses of John chapter 8, we, we kind of set the scene. And the scene is that Jesus is teaching in the temple court. 
Now, it says that it was early morning, and if you guys are like me, I am not a morning person. I'm going to assume that this scene is probably quiet. It's probably pretty calm. It's probably a serene setting. You've got Jesus teaching to some of his followers, some people who want to learn more about him. And we all know that, that Jesus was the, the greatest storyteller ever. So they were probably really engaged, and it was super calm and super quiet. Much like it is right now. Because they were tuned in, right, to what Jesus had to say. They wanted to learn what Jesus had to say. So they were locked in. They were focused. It was early morning, so it was probably quiet. I'm assuming they hadn't had their Starbucks yet. Right? Because in Jesus' time, I'm pretty sure there wasn't any Starbucks, but who knows? So it's probably quiet and calm and serene. And then we jump into verses 3 and 4. And in verses 3 and 4 is where we find that the angry mob shows up. Now, for any of you who have been around the church on a Thursday night, this is exactly what happens every Thursday night. It's calm and quiet around here, and all of a sudden the youth group shows up. And when the youth group shows up, it gets loud and rowdy and things get broken. I mean, things get misplaced. And things get spilled on the floor and pizza gets dropped and sodas get knocked over. So not exactly a mob, so to speak, but it's the same kind of thing. It's nice and quiet and I'm focused and I'm ready to bring a lesson to the youth group that hopefully is going to be meaningful and impactful. And all of a sudden the youth group shows up. That's exactly, guys, how I think this scene was probably set. So we've got this nice, calm, quiet scene, right? Jesus is teaching his followers, and all of a sudden, everything changes. And you've got this mob of people. This, this, it's, it's said to be an angry mob of people that show up. And they're fired up. And they're fired up. And as we're going to see a little bit later on, they're fired up because they think they're going to catch Jesus in a trap. And we're going to get into that a little bit later on. But an angry mob shows up. How many times... Do we find ourselves in that same position? How many times do we get swept up in the angry mob mentality? Did you hear about what brother so-and-so did? Did you hear about what sister so-and-so did? I can't believe they did that. And we start kind of spreading that around, and we almost form this same kind of a mob mentality. Well, we know that that is, that goes, is very counterproductive to what the teachings of the Bible is. And Colossians 3.13 says, bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. So that teaches us not to be part of this mob mentality. It teaches us not to get swept up in this whole he said, she said, or to gang up on our brothers and sisters, right? Because we're a church family. We're supposed to be one. We're supposed to have each other's backs. So I think that that's a a really good point of this story that maybe we've overlooked at times is the fact that we think of this angry mob, but sometimes we find ourselves in that exact same position. And the Bible very clearly teaches us that that's not where we should be. We should be forgiving one another just as he has forgiven us. So as we get into verse 4, this is where we kind of get into the the heart of the lesson, kind of the meat of the story, so to speak. Now, we're going to assume that this woman was engaged. And the reason that I say that is that under the old law, if a woman was engaged and committed adultery, she was to be stoned. If a woman was married and committed adultery, she was to be strangled. So we're going to assume, based on the punishment that is being given out here or the accusations that are being made, we're going to assume that this woman was probably engaged. So let's talk a little bit about what happened. So she had committed adultery, right? She had made a mistake. She had let the lust of the flesh take over and lead her into 
a situation that she shouldn't have found herself in. And it's really easy to point fingers, right, and say, how could she do that? It's very simple to do that. And the other question is, why did they choose adultery in this particular story to make the point? Why was that chosen, right? Because everything that, that's in the Bible is there for a reason, and it's there to teach us a lesson. So let's talk just a minute about what, what adultery is and why it's important. It breaks the law of God, right? First and foremost, it breaks the law of God. It's pretty clear on, on what the Bible says about adultery. Number two, it breaks hearts and destroys families and marriages, and it destroys trust, right? Because we all know that trust, once it's broken, is almost impossible to repair, so I think that that's probably part of the reason why adultery is used in this story and why that the Pharisees brought this woman accused of adultery because they knew it was kind of a quote-unquote major sin, even though we know there is no such thing as a major sin. The punishment, the punishment seems kind of harsh, right? Strangulation, or in this case, stoning, seems like kind of a harsh punishment. At least it does to me. Maybe it doesn't to you guys, but it seems kind of harsh. Seems like that's a pretty extreme punishment. So why such a strong punishment for adultery? <laughs> there go some of our rocks. I guess that's a rock and roll. <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't resist. I didn't plan that. <laughs> so <laughs> the reason that this, that this is put into place, that this, this harsh punishment for adultery, and the reason that adultery is that it goes against God's law, and it also protects the sanctity of marriage, and it protects God's design for physical relationships. And unfortunately, that's one of those things that's kind of gotten lost today in society, right? It's kind of a do what feels good, do what feels right, do what you want to do. But that's not the way that God designed physical relationships to be. The Bible is very clear that physical relationships are between a husband and a wife. So when you have an adulterous situation, you either have one person that's married and one person that's not, or you've got two people that are married to other people, and you find yourself in this situation. But that shows us how important this was to God. And again, as we're going to see in a few minutes, this is why the Pharisees, I believe, used adultery to set their trap or to put this plan into motion. But we're talking about the fact that adultery is kind of a quote-unquote major sin. And church, I think this is where we get off the rails sometimes. We seem to think that sin has classifications, right? Your sin is worse than my sin. You committed adultery, all I did was tell a little white lie. You destroyed a family, all I did was X, Y, Z. Guys, we've got to stop classifying sin, okay? Sin is sin, and the Bible makes that very clear, that sin is sin. Just because your sin is different than my sin doesn't make it any better or worse in God's eyes. And we have got to stop accusing other people, and we've got to stop being so hard on our brothers and sisters when they make a mistake because it was worse than what we do, because we all sin. Unless your name is Jesus Christ, you sinned, and you're probably going to sin again. And you may even sin today. And that's okay because we have forgiveness of our sins. But we've got to stop classifying our sins. And I think that that's a mistake that I see over and over again. And I think that we as a church family have to stop doing that. We've got to love one another. We've got to be there for one another. We've got to support one another and help overcome these things and stop classifying them that one is worse than another. If you see in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, for all 
have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It doesn't say some have sinned. It doesn't say they have sinned. It doesn't say we have sinned. It says very clearly, all have sinned. So we're all sinners. We've got to stop pointing fingers at each other, right? We've got to stop telling each other that your sins are worse than mine or my sins are better than yours. Proverbs 15.3 says, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. So in this story of this woman, she was publicly caught in adultery. It was a public thing. They brought her before Jesus in a public place and accused her, or in this case, caught her in the act of adultery. Now, thankfully for us, most of the time, our sins are not public sins, but that doesn't mean that they're not there. Just because it happens in the privacy of your own home doesn't mean it's not there. Sin is sin, and God sees it. And we like to think that we got away with things because we did it in the privacy of our own home or because nobody found out about it or because that brother or sister that we were talking about behind their back, they don't know we were talking about them, so therefore, it's not a sin. It didn't happen. But remember, God is omniscient and He knows all and He sees all. And sometimes I feel like we think because things are private that nobody knows about it, and that may be the case, but God always knows. It's just like your parents' youth group You think you get away with things. You think mom and dad don't know. But I'll tell you right now, most of the time they do know, even if they don't say anything. And you'll be amazed 20 years from now how smart your parents are and how much they really knew, even though at the time you were like, what are they thinking? So I'll tell you, I look back now, and I'm in my mid-40s. I look back now, and, and I'm amazed at how smart my parents really were and how much they really knew. But guys, it's the same way with God. He knows but he loves us. And again, nothing we can do is going to make God love us any less than what he loves us. So we are going to jump ahead into verses 5 and 6. Now, in verses 5 and 6, this is where things start to get a little bit interesting. Because again, the Pharisees think that they've caught Jesus in a trap. Right? So they brought this woman who's not only accused of adultery, she was caught in the act of adultery. So in theory, she is guilty as guilty could possibly be. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. There's no accusations. She was supposedly caught in the act of adultery. So they bring her before Jesus because the Bible even tells us that they're trying to catch Jesus in a trap. And there's a couple things here that tell us that. Number one, why were so many people witness to the adultery? Have you ever stopped and thought about that? This mob of people all witnessed the adultery? I'm not saying it didn't happen, but I don't want to know what was going on at that place. And number two, where was the man? Right? It takes two to tango, last time I checked. So if, they, if she was committing adultery, she had to be committing adultery with someone, where was he? Because under the old law, he would have been subject to punishment as well. So it's just another one of those things in this passage that's a little fishy, maybe a little off, that makes us go, wait a minute, something doesn't add up. So where was the man? I don't know. I don't know where the man was. But all we do know is there's certainly no mention of him as we work through this story. So that's what makes us wonder where he was. Now, so here's the trap that they set for Jesus. They, they, thought, they thought they had him because if... 
Jesus doesn't condemn her of her sins, and he lets her go without any consequences and without condemning her of her sins, then under the old law, he could be arrested. So if that happens, they've got him. The flip side of that coin is, if he goes along with the mob and says, yep, stone her to death, let's do it. Let's take care of this right now, right here. That goes against everything that Jesus has always taught about being a friend of sinners and showing forgiveness. So they think, we've got him. We've got him caught in a trap. There's no way out. Either way he goes, he's wrong. But what is the key mistake that they made? And this happens all the time in sports. They underestimated their opponent. They underestimated Jesus and the fact that he knew what was in their hearts and he knew exactly what they were doing. He knew. I don't know why they thought, after seeing what they had seen up to this point, I don't know why they thought they could beat Jesus, but they thought, we're going to catch him in this trap. But it didn't happen, right? Because Jesus knew exactly what they were doing. So again, this is where things get a little bit interesting. So we see that Jesus bent down So why did Jesus bend down? Seems like kind of an odd thing to write into the story. Why did he he kind of squat down or bend down? Why would he do that? When you bend down or you squat down like that, it's a sign of humility. He was taking on a physical posture of humbleness and humility, and he was putting himself below his accusers, and he was putting himself below the woman who had committed adultery. And that's super important, and that's one of those things that as we read through this story, sometimes we kind of skip over because we're trying to get to the good part, right? Which is the stoning. And we kind of skip past that part, but we don't stop and think. And this is where when we're reading our Bibles, we've got to really read our Bibles. Not just read it for the sake of, oh, I read John today. Okay? How many of us have done the same thing in school? Youth group, I know you have. Teacher tells you to read chapters 1 through 3. I read chapters 1 through 3. What would you get out of it? Absolutely nothing. (laughs) And we joke about that and we kind of laugh about that, but let's be honest with ourselves. When we're reading our Bibles, are we doing the same thing? Are we reading it just for the sake of being able to say, hey, I read through the whole Bible this year. Outstanding. What were the lessons that you learned? I learned how to turn a page, and I learned that the Bible starts with Genesis and ends in Revelations. But what did you get from it? So we've got to, as we're reading these types of stories, we've got to look at, look at these smaller things, look at these subplots, and look at the other things in the story that have meaning to them. So it says that he bent down. So he, he took that position of humbleness, and he took that position of humility, and he, and he bent down. And it says, he started to write on the ground with his finger. little piece of Bible trivia for you. The only time in the Scripture that we see Jesus in his earthly life writing anything is in John chapter 8. So those of you that play trivia games, when you get that trivia question, where in the Bible do we see Jesus writing? It's John chapter 8 in the story of the woman who was to be stoned. And you can thank me after you get that question right and you win. But it says that he wrote something. So what was he writing? That seems really strange that all of a sudden, during this moment, this intense moment, where, where he's, being, he's, he's in this trial, so to speak, he stops... And he bends down. And he starts writing something. What's he writing? 
what in the world was Jesus writing? Was he writing out the Ten Commandments? Possibly. Was he reliving creation where he put his fingers in the dirt and that's how man was created? Was he writing these men's names, the ones who were accusing this woman, as is foretold in the Old Testament about writing their names in the earth? Maybe. Or was he writing out his Amazon wish list? I don't know. Maybe he was. The bottom line is, I don't know. And Scripture doesn't say. So maybe, and again, I'm speculating, maybe he was just flat out ignoring them. So he bent down and started playing in the dirt. Your kids ever do that? You're trying to talk to your kids and all of a sudden they're writing in the dirt or they're playing with their phones and you're trying to have a serious conversation? (laughs) That might have been what's going on. We really don't know. And I couldn't find anything to tell me what Jesus was really writing in the dirt, but maybe he was just flat out ignoring them. It's very possible. And the bottom line is we just don't know at this point. All right, so we're going to jump ahead to verses 7 through 9. And this is where... This is where we're kind of getting into the, to the heart of it, to the stoning. So let's talk for just a second about how stonings would have worked back in these days. It was actually pretty elaborate. It wasn't just, hey, everybody grab a bunch of rocks and throw them. So when someone was found guilty of something like adultery and they were to be stoned, the way it worked was they would tie this person to a stake, either with you know, leather cords or rope or whatever they would, they would happen to have handy. So they would, they would physically restrain this person. They would build like a scaffolding type thing. And the person who was the main accuser would actually stand over them with what they called the stone of finishing. Now, I don't mean to be graphic, but the stone of finishing was designed to be just that. It was designed to be one and done. This is the stone of finishing. When I hit them with it, it's over. Now, if the stone of finishing didn't work, that's when the rest of the people who had assembled would then be able to throw their rocks as well. So I do want to read this. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and he said to them, let any of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and started writing again. So basically, he dropped the mic on them. Right? He said, those of you who are without sin, go ahead and cast that first stone. Boom, and he walked away. And he went back to writing in the dirt. And again, what was he writing? Maybe his Amazon list, I don't know. But he was doing something. But basically, he was giving them some time to do some self-reflection. And that's, that's what we're going to do here this morning as well, is we're going to do some self-reflection. And we're going to put ourselves in that position. So here we have this angry mob, right? And they're ready to stone this woman, and they're fired up. Because they think that they're going to see this woman be executed, and they think they're going to have a part in it. And they think that... This is my chance to be involved in this proceedings. And here's where the mood probably changes. And the way I see it is, we're back to that hush that falls over the crowd. So this angry mob that was yelling and screaming, much like my youth group on Thursday nights, yelling and screaming and making noise and moving around and probably banging their rocks together, all of a sudden are like, what just happened? He totally just dropped the mic on us. Where do we go from here? So if we flip on to verses 9 and 10, it says, At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, which I thought was interesting. So now, what probably breaks the silence 
is the sound of rocks hitting the ground. Your rocks rolling too. Now what, now what we see is probably the sound of rocks hitting the ground and feet starting to shuffle away. Now, I love the fact that it says the older ones first. Because what's the old saying? Older and wiser, right? And I think that was there for a reason. Because again, I think everything that's in, in, in the inspired word is there for a reason. And it specifically says that the older ones left first. And again, it's that theory of the older, the wiser, right? And I think most times that's probably true. Not always, most times. But they started to do that self-reflection. And they started to realize, I have sin in my life too. And Jesus just said, he who is without sin. And they all left. It doesn't say some of them left. It says, till they were standing there alone. Now, you'll notice too, Jesus uses the word woman. And we don't really think much of that word today. But in this time, and especially for someone who had just committed adultery, that would have actually been a respect, a word of respect, to use the word woman. So they're standing there alone. Everybody else left. And they're face to face, and he is now face to face with the ultimate judge, jury, and ultimately executioner. What do you think was going through her mind at this time? I don't know about you guys, I'd be freaking out. Right? Because she knows she was just caught in adultery. And she may, have, she may have avoided the stoning that she could have received from this angry mob, but now she's standing face to face with Jesus, who knows all, who sees all. I'll bet she was scared. I really do. I'll bet her knees were shaking. I'll bet her hands were shaking. She's probably sweating. I mean, this was the Middle East. She's probably sweating anyway, but she's probably really sweating now because she's standing face to face with Jesus. And he stands up. Now that all the others have walked away, he stands up and he asks her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? So we're going to kind of assume that maybe Jesus had his back to the crowd while he was writing in the dirt. And he stands up and he says, hey, where'd everybody go? What happened to all these people who just a few minutes ago were ready to put you to death? It says, no one. And he says something so powerful. He says, neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. Neither do I condemn you. So again, this woman hadn't been accused. She'd been caught. It's not a, I wonder if this woman sinned. I wonder what this woman did. I wonder what skeleton she has in her closet. We know what skeleton she had in her closet. It's been made very clear during this story what the skeletons are that she had in her closet. And Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. This is a very powerful, powerful verse for us. Right? Because we are no better than this woman who committed adultery. Because we've all sinned. Every person in this room has sinned. I've sinned. You've sinned. Our elders have sinned. Probably never going to do this again now. Um, but we've all sinned, guys. And Jesus doesn't 
condemn us for our sins. And why does he not condemn us for our sins? Because he came down to earth and took the punishment for us. He took it for us. We deserve it. He got it. But we're not condemned for our mistakes. And that's where I think we go wrong sometimes. Because we've all made mistakes. And this goes back to a conversation I was having with Devet a while back. That I feel so bad for Christians who let their sins define them. Instead of understanding that Jesus already paid the price, you don't have to let your sin define you anymore. This woman was caught, quote-unquote, red-handed, right? She was caught. Jesus didn't condemn her. We get caught every day. Jesus doesn't condemn us because he loves us, because he forgives us, because Christ already paid the price for our sins. So what are our takeaways? I'm going to read a verse for you real quick before we get into our takeaways. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. We confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. That pretty, sounds pretty clear to me. He forgives us of all of our sins. If we come to him with true repentance in our hearts, and we ask for forgiveness, He will forgive us. So here's your takeaways from today's lesson. Because I'm a big believer that if we're going to stand up here and give you a lesson, we need to give you something that you can take with you and something you can walk out the back door with. Otherwise, it's just a lecture and nobody wants a lecture. Takeaways. No sinner is too far gone. You guys all probably know the story of the prodigal son. It's probably my favorite story from the Bible about this kid who took his inheritance and ran away from his father and did all kinds of terrible things and spent all of his money and was hungry and living in the dirt and not even eating as good as the pigs. And what happened when he came back to his father? He welcomed him with open arms. He said, welcome home, son. And he gave him a robe and a ring. And he slaughtered the best cow so they could have some nice steak. But he welcomed him back with open arms. And that's exactly what God does for us if we'll simply come to him and ask for that forgiveness. He's going to welcome you back in with open arms because he loves you. No guilt is too deep. And this goes back to what we were just talking about. We've got to let go of the guilt. Because that guilt isn't on us anymore. If it was, there would have been no point in Jesus dying the death that he died on the cross. He did that for us so that we don't have to carry that guilt around with us, even though that's exactly what we deserve. We don't have to do that anymore. No one is beyond the grace of God, and we have hope in the midst of our hopelessness. You guys ever feel that way? How do you think this woman felt when she was brought before God? You think she felt hopeless? You think she felt what was about to happen? I'm pretty sure she did, and I'm pretty sure she felt like there's no way out of this situation. But what was her way out? Jesus. And what is our way out? Jesus, thank you. Jesus is our way out. He already paid the price so that you and I don't have to. So we've got to let that go, guys. We've got to let that guilt go. We've got to stop carrying these sins around. We've got to stop letting these sins define us because they don't define us. That's not who we are. 
We are Christians. We are children of our Heavenly Father who loves us. So again, nothing you do will make God love you any less. And that's the one thing. If you only take one thing away from today, that's what I want you to take with you. So will you go ahead and bow and pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for being the amazing God that you are. And we thank you so much for loving us even when we don't deserve it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for loving us despite the mistakes that we make, despite the sins that we've committed, and despite the fact that we're not even deserving of the amazing love that you have for us. Heavenly Father, help us today to walk away from these sins, whether it's something that's ongoing, whether it's something from our past that we just can't seem to let go of. Help us to leave those things here today, Heavenly Father, and to be able to walk out with our head up high knowing that we are chosen by you, that we are loved by you, and that we are forgiven. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for all that you blessed us with. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So, as we wrap up our, our lesson today, you guys all received a stone when you walked in. And as I promised you, we'll get to why. So, those stones that you guys are all carrying with you today, some of them are large, some of them are small, some of them are heavy, and some of them are light. But those are representative of those sins that we're carrying around with us. Whether it's a big sin, whether it's a small sin, maybe it's a relationship that you need to mend. Maybe it's a mistake that you've made in your past that you're letting define you on a daily basis. You're going to have the opportunity this morning to lay those sins down in a symbolic gesture. In just a few moments, I'm going to ask you to come forward and lay your stones up here on the stage, on the steps of the stage. And the reason that I want you to do that is I want you to think about this is whatever that is that I need to let go of, that addiction, that sin, that relationship that I need to, that I need to fix. And when you lay it down up here on the steps, I want you to truly walk away from that, knowing that you're loved, knowing that you're forgiven, so that when you walk out that back door today, the sin stays here. And you can walk out knowing that you're forgiven and that you're loved. As you come forward this morning, if we can pray with you, maybe you need help getting rid of that sin. You need help laying down that sin. If we can pray for you, please stay up here in the front and we'll be happy to do that. Maybe you have never been baptized to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit and you want to be washed from all of those sins and walk out of here a new person with a right relationship with Christ. You have an opportunity to do that this morning. The baptistry is ready. Or maybe you're a Christian and the life you've led is not a life that you want to lead. Or maybe you have some of those things in your past that you just can't let go of. You have an opportunity this morning to make things right with your Heavenly Father before you leave this morning. So I'm going to invite you to come forward, lay those stones down, and leave those sins here.
dismissed um, just a couple things that I wanted to, to say. I'm going to invite all of my youth group up here up to the stage real quick. So I'm, I'm not going to lie, guys. I feel like a proud dad this morning. Um, I think these kids did an amazing job. And I'm so sorry. You guys should be seated. I'll make you stand. 
Um, I feel like a proud dad this morning, guys. Um, this is something that we've been working on for a while now. And uh, as those of you who have been on this stage know, it is not the easiest thing to do to get up here and to speak in front of an entire congregation. So I couldn't be more proud of our youth group this morning. Um, so please feel free to encourage them, to love on them, tell them what a great job that they did. Um, and really just we want to encourage them to do this. And this is something that we're going to do on an ongoing basis. Um, probably every fifth Sunday, we'll give the youth a chance to come up and do some different things. And we'll have different people reading the scriptures and things like that. But my job as the youth minister is to really help get the, to get the kids plugged into our worship services. And because, guys, this is not just the church of tomorrow. This is also part of the church of today. And sometimes we, we forget that, I think. And we think about the kids are the next generation. Well, they're also this generation. And it's super important. And I want to encourage them, and I hope that you'll join me in doing that. Um, also, I have a very, very special announcement uh, that I wanted to share with you guys. We had our end-of-the-year pool party last night. And uh, I couldn't be more excited to let you know that Kennedy Clark was baptized last night. And as you, as you can see from the pictures, her, her dad was on hand to, uh, to do the honors. And, and I can tell you, as someone who's, who's baptized my own child, there is no greater feeling than to, uh, to be able to baptize your child into Christ. So we are super proud of, of Kennedy. She is an amazing young woman. She's an, an athlete, a student, and just does some amazing things and is always just such a good positive energy for our youth group. So we're very thankful to have her. And we are so thankful that we were able to be a part of her baptism last night. Um, so what I'm going to do just real quick, and then I'll let you guys go. I know we're running long, and I apologize, uh, but thanks for sticking with us. I'm going to invite Jason and Lenon to come up. Um, I'm also going to invite our elders to come up. And we're going to pray over Kennedy as we dismiss. pray with me and then we'll be dismissed. Heavenly Father, we are just beyond excited for the decision that Kennedy has made. And we are just so happy for the whole Clark family. And we share in them with rejoicing over her baptism. Um, we want to pledge as a church that we are going to be here for her, that we are going to be here to love her, to support her, and to be with her inevitably when times get tough. Um, and Heavenly Father, we know that the angels are rejoicing, that we are rejoicing, and we just pray that she'll be able to take this strength and this positivity and to take that with her going forward, and that she will grow in an even closer relationship with you. Heavenly Father, we are just so thankful for this weekend. We are so thankful for all of the amazing youth that we have at this church. We pray that you will just continue to be at work in their lives. It's in Jesus' precious name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Guys, if you want to grab the rocks in the back. He never runs out on me. He's higher than the mountain.